0: If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Matthew's Gospel and the 25th chapter. We are working our way toward the end of our series entitled, What We Believe. And we're continuing a little sub-series that we began last week about final judgment. Specifically, with last week and this week, concentrating on the final judgment of the wicked. The Bible says that it is appointed unto people, men and women alike, once to die and after this, the judgment. We looked at the finality of the judgment of the wicked uh, last week and um, that coming at the end of the age. There is a judgment that is coming for all of us. For the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And I asked the question last week, which judgment will you stand before? The saved will appear before the judgment seat or the Bema seat of Christ. Lord willing, will talk about that next week. And last week we, we spoke where the unsaved will stand before the great white throne. I'm going to warn you from the outset, this isn't going to be a feel-good sermon. This isn't going to be a sermon that pours the oil of gladness over your head. You will be tempted to look out the window and let your mind wander. You will be tempted to think about anything else than what is being preached this morning. And I pray that you will fight to stay with me as we look at what is the most sobering doctrine in all of scripture, the reality of hell. Why preach on hell? Some would ask. There are people that say, well, you know, I don't preach hell, I just preach the gospel. That's hogwash. If a person has never told someone about the punishment that comes from disobeying the gospel and rejecting Jesus, then you have never properly told them the gospel. Charles Spurgeon once said, we rob the gospel of its power if we leave out the threatening of its punishment. One preacher has put it, our preaching preaching in our day and time has become so weak it's as if we have air-conditioned hell. There are many people that do not believe in hell and a lot of them call themselves Christians. And I'm not just talking about the, the JWs, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witness, he didn't like the doctrine of hell so he just created his own religion with the absence of hell. Mormons water down eternal punishment with mere outer darkness. And there are many a professing Christian that don't teach that hell is a real place. Why do I believe in the existence of hell? Not because it makes for good preaching. I believe in the reality of hell because the Bible teaches of its existence. And more so than that, I believe in the reality of hell because Jesus taught about hell. In fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else. We know what we know about hell primarily from the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He taught more about hell than he did about heaven and he describes it more vividly. There's no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned about the absolute reality of hell. For Jesus himself said it. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So to save them from what? Why did he leave all of heaven to save us from? What did he leave all of heaven to save us from? The goal of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was to save people from hell. So the goal of this message is first for anyone under the sound of my voice that if you do not know Christ as Savior, for this to serve as a warning. But for those of us that do know Christ, for this to motivate you to better appreciate, love honor and serve the Lord Jesus Christ from what he has saved you from. So look with me, Matthew chapter 25, and I want to read to your hearing verses 31 through 46. These are the words of God. But when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another. "...as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world." For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you to the extent that you did it to the one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer to them saying, truly I say to you to the extent of that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have read some of the most sobering words in all of scriptures. This is without question the most sobering doctrine in all of scripture and that of eternal punishment. Father, we pray that as we Look at your word that you would open our eyes to the truth of it, to the finality of it, to know that there is a day coming in which you will judge the world in righteousness and those who die in their sin will be destined to a place called hell. For those that do not know Christ as Savior, may this day be the day that they are driven to Jesus. For those of us who already know, may this be the motivation that helps us love you more, honor you more, and serve you better. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray, amen. I wanna draw four points from this passage. The first three, uh, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on. The meat and potatoes will come from point four. Point number one, look at verse 31. We see the return. We see the return. It says, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. The setting of this passage is like it was last week in Revelation 20. It is at the end of the age, after the Lord's return, after the final defeat of Satan. We see Jesus in this passage seated upon His throne as judge. The first time He came as the suffering servant... He ascended back into heaven as the victorious savior. He will return as the conquering king and sovereign judge. Think for a moment. Think for a moment back to a time when you were the most frightened. Think of an experience in your life where you were filled with the most Fear. It may have been something that you did as a kid and you were fearful, you were afraid, you were terrified about your parents finding out about it and what they would do. It may have been a time where uh, prior to your uh, coming to Christ, you, had a, uh, you did something illegal and were worried about the legal ramifications of it. It could have been a time that somebody told you a scary story or you watched a, a, a scary movie. Whatever it is, think about the time when you were filled with the most fear because all of that does not even pale in comparison to the fear that will be experienced On that great day when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's going to be two groups of people there. There's going to be people that are so grateful and thankful to bow that knee and to confess that Christ is Lord. They're going to be so thankful that eternity is beginning. Oh God, thank you that you have returned, that that eternity has begun, that that, that, that the way of salvation that was prepared so long ago that now sin will be completely gone. That Christ will 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 be my eternal home and my eternal uh, 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 light, and, and and all of eternity will be spent with Him. There will be people that are thankful to bow the knee on that day and confess, and then there are going to be people that are be filled with so much fear, more fear than you could ever 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 imagine, more than could ever words could ever describe. This will be the final courtroom that ever takes place. The prosecutor, judge, jury, and execution will be the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like I said last week, there will be no defense. There will be no cross-examination. The judge on the, on the throne will not be swayed or bribed in any way, any way, shape, form, or fashion. The guilty will not be able to throw themselves at the mercy of the court because there will be no mercy to be found on that day. The time for seeking mercy will be over. And the only verdict that will be rendered will be that of guilty. The punishment that will be carried out will be immediate and eternal. And understand this, it will be final. The finality of this. It will be final. There will be no plea bargaining. There will be no shortened sentences. Those that stand before the great white throne of the Lord Jesus Christ will suffer the weight of their punishment for all eternity, and it will be final. That verdict will be final. Point number two, verse 32, we see a roundup. We see the return and we see the roundup. Look what it says. It says, and all the nations will be gathered before him. All of mankind that has ever lived will be gathered together at one point in time for this final judgment. There will be a rounding up, but then there's also going to be a separation. He's going to round them up, but he's also going to separate them. The great shepherd knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. He will gather those of his flock, and he will also call for those that are not of his flock, that have been awaiting this day in a holding cell of torment. Revelation 20 talks about how death and Hades gave up their dead. The wicked do not go immediately to the lake of fire. We talked about this last week. Nobody's in the lake of fire yet. The beast, that's the Antichrist, the false prophet and Satan will be the first inhabitants of the lake of fire, but they're not there yet. The beast and the, or the Antichrist and the false prophet, they have not stepped on the world scene just yet. And we know where Satan is. Satan is currently roaming around seek as the roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour because he knows his time is short and misery loves company. Until this final judgment at the great white throne, when the wicked die, they immediately go to a type of holding cell of torments as seen in Luke 16, and we'll look at that in a moment. So for, as we said last week, for the righteous... If you study the scriptures for the righteous, for those that die in Christ, those that have been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus, it's going to go from worse to better. And even if you think about this, heaven is not our final destination. For when we die, when we rapture, we go to heaven to be with the Lord. We're there, but then we're, we're coming back with him to where to, to where he will rule and reign here and then it'll recreate the earth and heaven and earth will become one. So... Heaven's not our final destination. The new heaven and the new earth, when, when he recreates it after all of that, and heaven and earth become one. So for the believer, for the one who dies in Christ, it goes from worse, the worst part is now, from worse to better to best. From worse to better to best. But what about for the unrighteous? What about for the one who dies in their sin? It goes from best. Could you imagine that? That if the best that you have it is right now, this world now, in its fallenness, in its brokenness, sure, we see the beauty of God's handiwork, of His his handiwork in creation and in the good things that we get to enjoy. But if this is all, all that a person is ever going to know is good. How awful is that? So for the, for, the, for the unredeemed, it goes from best to bad to worse. It only goes from bad to worse for the unregenerate. Now with point three verses, the first part of uh, 33 through 40 and the second part of verse 46 uh, look what it says in, in verse 33. It says, he will put his sheep on his right. And then look at 34, it says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And in verse 36, it says, to the right, the righteous into eternal life. Now, I want you to notice something that it's, that's said there in verse 33. Verse 33 says that he will put his sheep on, he will put the sheep on his right. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. His right and the left. And I believe there is intention in it saying that in the text. Now I know in verse 41, it's gonna, it says, then he will say to those on his left uh, uh, to display the, the judgment that the Lord is about to enact. But there is something interesting there in verse 33 in the, in the receiving and the separating that's going on there. It shows that at this separation Jesus has no ownership, no relationship, or any association whatsoever to the goats. He does not know them. So he says the, the, the sheep are on his right, his right. They're his. They belong to him. The goats are on the left. The goats are on the left. We've been talking about the right and the left position on Wednesday nights going through the book of Genesis. The position of the right is known as the place of honor. The position of the left is the place of dishonor. In Jewish custom, the eldest sat on the right of the patriarchal father. It was the place of inherent blessing. Jesus told the Sanhedrin that they would see him coming in the clouds of heaven seated at the right hand of power. The sheep, the bride of Christ, is received by the Lord to his right. Next week we'll look at the blessings that await uh, those that know Christ as Savior that that, um, has been, uh, as Jesus says in verse 34, prepared from the foundation of the world. Now, let me say this real quick about verses 35 through 40. I don't have time to develop all of that, but it it does, Jesus is not teaching works-based salvation. Some try to make that argument. That's not what the passage is saying because we know from the whole of scripture, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. At the same time, Even though salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, it's not a salvation of works, but it is a salvation that's identified by works. It is a salvation that goes to work. If you say that you have salvation, but there are no works, no fruit to back that up, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus says, then your faith is dead. Point number four, and this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time the removal. The removal. Look at the, the, the second part of verse 33. It says the goats on the left. Now jump over and look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal or everlasting fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And then drop down to the first part of verse 46 and these will go away into eternal punishment. Now there are three heresies that are taught with regard to eternal punishment. The first is that of universalism. That means that there'll be no punishment at all, just that everybody eventually is going to be saved, even the devil. The second is one called restorationism. It means that uh, some people would go to hell, but after a period of time, they'll be released and able to go to heaven, and only the worst of the worst of the worst will stay there. And then there's one that is real popular. It's called annihilationism. That means that when the wicked die, that they will just cease to exist. That when the, the, the people who, who die in their sin, they will just cease to exist. The Bible does not teach any of these things. To be more specific, Jesus does not teach any of these things. Jesus was a hellfire preacher. John the Baptist gets, gets talked about more than, more than anyone else for being a hellfire and brimstone preacher. But you study the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself was a hellfire preacher because he came to seek and save people from going there. We get the majority of our information about hell from the teachings of Jesus. He knew there was a hell that awaited all that die in their sin. Every unforgiven sin, every sin committed by every person who rejects Christ will justly be punished by God forever in a place called hell. This is tough to say. And this is tough to wrap our minds around it. And if we're honest, we don't want to think about it. We want to put it out of our mind. But the reality of hell, hell is conscious, eternal punishment. Look at what the text says there in verse 46. Eternal, everlasting punishment, continuous, ongoing. The unsaved will be left, will be on the position of the left, symbolizes the position of judgment and will be removed from the presence of the Lord's mercy, the presence of the Lord's love, the presence of the Lord's goodness to a place of His full, unvarnished wrath for all eternity. And that place is known as hell. If you study the original languages, there are three words that are used for hell in the Bible. In the Old Testament, is the, the, the Old Testament Hebrew word Sheol, which means it can mean grave or place of the dead. In the New Testament, we you, you can run you run across the word Hades. Sometimes reference to Hades. In fact, uh, so the word that's often, that's used by the Lord Jesus in Luke 16. We'll look, look, look at that in, in, in a moment. Uh, but the, 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 the word that is most often used for hell, the one that the, the book of Revelation uses as the lake of fire is the word Gehenna. The word Gehenna. Gehenna is a biblical term because it, at the time it was a biblical Place Gehenna is the clearest, most vivid New Testament term to describe the final hell. Gehenna is in the Valley of Ben Hinnom, and you can read this. It's also called Topheth in Second Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Reads about this place. It's located just southwest of the city of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament times, it was a place where idolatrous Israelites burned their children in fire as sacrifices to false gods, and priests, worshippers to Baal and to Moloch would bang drums to drown out the screams of the infants as they burned alive. In Jesus's day, it was a trash dump for the city of Jerusalem. And it was treated like an incinerator because it was a constant ongoing fire that burned the garbage. Burned the garbage and oftentimes burned dead, uh, uh, dead bodies of criminals. The fires that kept burning constantly gave off a foul smell. Foul smelling smoke. The dump was infested with maggots. The valley of Ben-Hinnom was a fitting picture of eternal hell that Jesus uh, repeatedly used but in his teachings he's and 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 this is something that a lot of people they think that Jesus is just talking about that valley, that he's just talking about that trash heap but you study his teachings no he's using that as a reference point but saying that the the final hell is worse Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 22 He said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whosoever says to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. He says in verse 29, but if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. And one of the most common verses that people think of when thinking about Jesus' teachings on hell is Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 where Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, there are people that have misconceptions about hell and what that will actually be. First and foremost, it's not going to be a place where Satan's sitting on some type of throne calling the shots. That's just not biblical. Uh, Satan doesn't even have the, the keys to his final place of punishment. Who does the Lord Jesus? For He alone has the keys to death and hell. Hell, uh, and 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 a lot of people that you know had to read Dante's Inferno in school. And uh, hell will not be a place where demons, were with pitchforks, will be chasing the condemned around and torturing them and harassing them for all of eternity. And it won't be like that. It'll be worse. It'll be much, much worse. Another time that the Lord Jesus, another reference that the Lord Jesus speaks of hell is in Luke chapter 16, where we see the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Let me read a portion of that for you. You know the story. If you've come up in church, been in church any length of time, you know the story of it well. There was a rich man who had good things, who lived a life of extravagance, and then there was Lazarus who uh, sat at the gate and was covered in in sores. Uh, Verse 22 is where I want to pick up. It says, Luke 16, verse 22 says, Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony And besides all this between us, there is a, a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over here to you and are not able, none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I am asking you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will never come to this place of torment. But Abraham said they have Moses, the prophets let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. I may need to preach on that one Sunday and develop all of that and how that, 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 that Jesus is saying, even if someone comes back from the dead, they won't believe. But they have Moses and the prophets how applicable that is for our day, for these people who want to be judged themselves, that want proof of God's existence. Here it is. And in Jesus' parable here, he says, they have it, they have the word of God, but it's not good enough for them. But back to what we're talking about now in the reality of hell, and we've, reached, we've read what just said, uh, Lazarus being in torment, crying out for mercy and finding none. Agony in the flame, agony, place of torment. We read one of the realities of, of hell is that hell will be experienced by the whole body of that individual. Matthew 28 says, fear the one who uh, can uh, kill both body and soul in hell. When the unregenerate die, they're, they're suffering before the lake of fire, before the final judgment, they're suffering in the holding cell of Hades. But at that final judgment, they will be given a new body. Just like the redeemed will be given a new body at the judgment seat of Christ. When the dead in Christ shall rise first, that spirit and body is going to meet that brand new body to serve the Lord in without sin, without spot, without blemish. Glorified body to serve Christ, to bear the glory of God and not be consumed by it for all eternity. Well, the wicked are going to get a new body as well. It will be a body that will just uh, to be tormented, to suffer the torments of hell, to suffer the wrath of God for all eternity, but never to be destroyed. To be constantly being destroyed, yet never cease to be destroyed. That's what the second death is. But, this, but it will be death in a way that the act of dying continues forever and ever and ever so hell will uh, will will be experienced by the whole body, and hell indeed will be painful. For, listen to the language. Eternal punishment, everlasting punishment. And look what it's and if you're in Luke 16, if you've turned there, it says in verse 23: being in torment. I want to break that phrase down, being. Think about about the the English terminology, the the terms of the word be. Be means future, to be something, that means in the future. Been, have been, that means past tense. But that I-V-E-I-N-G means present state. Present state in that moment. And in that moment will never, ever end. That moment, that state of being will never, ever end. What won't ever end? The next word, torment. What are the torments of hell? Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 refers to it as shame and everlasting contempt. Paul in 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 5 through 10 says endless destruction and punishment. Jude 7 calls it eternal fire and darkness. The Apostle John describes it in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 11. Let me read some of that to you. It says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, listen to this, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Think back to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he say? He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What was in the cup? What was in the cup? We're told here in Revelation chapter 14, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage. That is what Jesus drank had poured all over him. So that leaves a person with the decision either Christ drank it on your behalf or you will drink it and have it poured on you for all eternity. He also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lord and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And listen to this. They have no rest day and night. Never ending, never let up, no comfort, no help on the way torment day and night listen and think about some of the passages where jesus speaks other other passages where jesus speaks about the veracity and the torments of hell we're familiar with matthew chapter 8 verse 12 where jesus says there will be cast into that outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth what does that mean well there will be two types of people in hell There will be those that will be sad to be there. There will be sad because of the physical and mental torment that they are experiencing and will experience forever and ever and ever without end. There will be those that are weeping that will stand before the Lord. They will say, Lord, Lord, we did this and that and all of these other things. But he's going to say, I never knew you. And they will be weeping. But then there's going to be another group of folks that are gnashing their teeth. What does that mean? It means there will be those that are angry at God for being there, and they will suffer the torments of hell, gnashing their teeth in hatred. There will be those that will be there that are angry for being there we can't fathom that because we do not properly understand just how wicked and fallen and depraved human nature truly is men like adolf hitler and benito mussolini and joseph stalin are a rarity And the Bible says that evil men will wax worse and worse the closer that we get to the rapture of the church and the end times. And we see that. We see that now with the way cameras are everywhere. We see this, the the viciousness in the culture where people will just for no reason whatsoever just viciously attack a complete stranger for either what they have in their hand, what they have in their pocket, maybe even for the very shoes on their feet, or it could be for no reason at all, just because they picked that person to be evil upon. But always remember this, as evil as things are, it can always be worse because one of the roles of the Holy Spirit of God And you find this in Paul's letter to Thessalonians where it talks about he who hinders will hinder until he is taken out of the way. That's the Holy Spirit suppressing evil from being as evil as it possibly can be. And let's just get down to brass tacks. It's suppressing us from being as evil as we possibly can can be. Paul was not exaggerating when he wrote in Romans 3, there is none righteous, there is none that seeks after God, no, not one. We don't understand the brevity of that fall and what it did to the human nature. And we're told that apart from Christ, before before we were saved, Paul tells us we were what? haters of God and so when an unrepentant sinner stands before the great white throne of, of Christ they will stand there and all of that restraining power will be removed and what will be left in its place will be something that is more vile if it will make Adolf Hitler look like a choir boy and when that sinner is cast into hell, they will gnash their teeth in anger to God, suffering in the torments of hell and given over to their complete hatred. So much that if, if after a several millennia, and this is not possible, but this is just how how much a person is given over and how sin just continues on in hell that if after several millennia if the Lord Jesus were to say hey he opens the door to hell and says hey if you will fall down and worship me you can come out they will be so given over to that that they will run not to take him up on his offer Not to fall down and worship him, but to slam the door shut. Because they've been completely given over to that hatred. Hell will be filled with the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Jesus says fiery furnaces. It refers to hell as fiery furnaces and unquenchable fires. Outer darkness. And we think of the outer darkness as the absence of, of light. As the absence of light. And it will be the, the absence of God's holy light. His goodness, His mercy, His love. But that outer darkness means endless despair. Endless despair. To know that help's never coming. Relief is never coming. Jesus used the, the, these pictures to help us understand just the horror that awaits those that, that are lost. The, the, the darkness represents loneliness, insecurity, being lost, disoriented. Fire represents excruciating pain and burning. The lake of fire represents the sense of drowning and suffocating, taking the burning sulfur internally. And think about, think about the mental aspect of it. Think about the abandonment as a torment in hell not only will hell be a place of physical suffering but mental suffering as well we we oftentimes we overlook the, the mental agony of being abandoned for all eternity cause you think about it the most chilling cry from our Lord Jesus through his suffering was when he hung upon the cross and said in Matthew 27 verse 46 he said my God my God why have you forsaken me John MacArthur explained the significance of God forsaking the Son in relation to hell. He said, this is a reminder to all sinners that while hell is the full fury of God's personal punishment presence, he will never be there to comfort. Can you imagine that? A place where comfort will never come. If you're a child, you know the comfort and the reassurance of your parent. Husbands, you know the comfort that your wife gives you. Wives, you know the comfort that your husband gives you. And we as Christians know the comfort that the Comforter gives us in times of distress and grief. But think about a place where comfort's not coming. It will be sought after, but it will not be realized. It will be cried for, but not found. As Puritan writer Thomas Vincent put it, not only will the unbeliever be in hell, but hell will be in him too. In heaven, joy squeezes out any opportunity for sadness. But in hell, sadness squeezes out any opportunity for joy. Another of the torments is that hell is inescapable. The New Testament frequently presents hell as a prison a place of eternal confinement. You see this Matthew 22, verse 13, 2 Peter 2, 9, Jude 13, where it's a place of final, inescapable. There's an island off of the coast of San Francisco called Alcatraz. It sits in San Francisco San Francisco Bay. It's now a de- defunct prison. At one time, it was up and running, and it was said to be inescapable. But however, during the years of its operations, a total of 36 prisoners made 14 escape attempts. Most were caught, a few were killed, several drowned. But five were missing and assumed that drowned. But many have speculated that at least one of them made it to shore and was able to live out the rest of his life in freedom. We'll never know. But we know this. As inescapable as Alcatraz or any other earthly prison may seem, many men still try to escape. But the idea that is the absolute reality of hell is that hell is absolutely inescapable. No one is going to swim to freedom from the shores of the Lake of Fire. And if you really want to get a picture Of the torments of hell, look to the sufferings of Jesus. Now, Jesus did not die and go to hell to suffer for our sins. There are many that teach that. That is a heresy. Jesus did all of his suffering on the earth. When he died, he said, "It is finished." But you look at how at the suffering that he went through, the torments that began even in the garden, even in the garden, and that all the way through his passion till he gave up the ghost. On the cross, and you see him in the garden there, and you think of the torments that await the lost, and you see the bloody drops of sweat falling from Jesus' face. The reality that he knows that's coming his way, that he's about to absorb his Father's eternal wrath. And we hear his agonizing screams from the cross, where for the first and last time, he's abandoned by his father and you feel the loneliness as he faced those agonies alone all jesus had ever known was love communion and fellowship with the father and the spirit but when he was on that cross he was all alone and that's what awaits every unrepentant sinner. But for that sinner, hell is eternal. Hell is eternal. Jesus suffered for a few hours to purchase the redemption of his church. The unregenerate will have to suffer forever in hell. And people think about that. They're like, you know, well, that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem right. Again, we don't understand the nature of our fallenness and we surely don't understand the holiness, the perfectness and the goodness of God. because the severity of an offense is measured not merely just based on the act itself, but also in relation to the one offended. For example, if someone were to come into church right now and not like what I'm saying and punch me in the nose, if we're able to get them caught by the law, they'll, you know, face a few charges. Salt and battery, trespassing, um, um, disturbing the peace. But if they were to go punch the president of the United States in the nose, well, that ups the ante, right? When the Secret Service gets gets through with him, he'll do some serious prison time. The same, the same. It's the exact same thing in the council of God, but on a much greater scale. It's not the length of the sin. It's the height of it. It's the height of the one that has been sinned against. God is holy, God is just, and God is good far beyond our comprehension. So the sin committed is measured against the holy, righteous standard of God. And what's the standard? Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So according to his word, the punishment for an offense against a holy God is everlasting punishment in hell. But people get so caught up on that, but they don't realize the grace and the mercy that he's also provided a means of escape through salvation in Jesus Christ. The biblical doctrine of hell gives us yet another reason to praise God for the gospel because it took an eternal person to satisfy an eternal penalty against sin. Disqualifies everybody else but one, and that's Jesus. He is the son of man and the eternal son of God. And when he laid his life down, his sacrifice satisfied every requirement of divine justice For those who trust in Jesus as their substitute, his death has satisfied the eternal wrath of an eternal righteous God. He bore our punishment in his body, absorbing God's eternal wrath. But for those who do not embrace that, for those that do not embrace him, they are left to themselves. They will bear their own guilt of their own offenses against an eternal God, and they will suffer for it eternally. I hope that the reality of this doctrine, the reality of hell, sobers you. For if you have never truly bowed the knee to Christ, I beg you to repent and believe. But to you who have been redeemed, may the doctrine of the reality of hell fill you with praise to God for saving you from it, for saving you from eternal punishment, for giving you eternal life instead. May it humble you when you realize that you're not getting what you deserve. And may it ignite in you a passion to proclaim the gospel to those poor souls who are unaware of the terror that awaits them outside of the mercy of God. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your Word and how I have unworthily tried to unfold it. Lord, these are terrifying truths that we have read and examined. There is a real place called hell that is really awaiting All that die in their sin, real people will really go there and really suffer the mental and the physical torments for all eternity. But there's also the real truth that there's an escape clause here and now that by the bloodshed sacrifice, the perfect sinless life and sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all those who trust in him will not have to face that horrible fate. Help us, Lord, that those that have received that great gift help us to be conveyors of the message so that people would bow their knee to Christ and code know him as Savior. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.